Today we're going to talk about chemical reactions, and we'll learn how the concepts of thermodynamics can be used to tell us when a reaction will occur and when it will not. And why am I so excited? Well, because chemical reactions are fundamentally part of everything we do. And I'm not just talking about the candle example I discussed in an earlier lecture, where we learned about the chemical potential. I'm talking about understanding what particular process is going to make a set of materials do precisely what we want, or how to get the most energy out of a given type of combustion process, or for that matter, what our bodies do with the food we eat to literally maintain life itself. And these are examples of processes that are different in a crucial way compared to some of the other types of processes we've covered in this class, like a gas expanding to do mechanical work, or a dye diffusing into a liquid to create a new mixture, or for that matter, magnetic, surface tension, electric, or entropic work. In those cases, work is done, systems change, lots of fun stuff happens. However, nothing happens to the inherent building blocks of the system. I could make a mixture of water and ethanol, and as we know, the volume is not simply equal to the original volumes of each one separately. So an interesting thing is happening due to the fact that I made a mixture. And we talked about that in Lecture 9, and how it can be described by the concept of partial molar quantities. However, in that case, nothing changed about the inherent amount of components in the system. If I started with one mole of water and one mole of ethanol, then I ended with 6 times 10 to the 23rd molecules of water and 6 times 10 to the 23rd molecules of ethanol. That is, the same number. In other words, nothing was consumed or altered chemically at the level of the component itself during the process. That kind of process is not a chemical reaction. In the examples I first mentioned, like combustion for energy conversion, materials chemistry, and, well, life itself, among so many other processes, there is work being done. And it's a direct result of substances changing their nature. This is called chemical work, and it's based on a process wherein the number of moles of a component in the system changes. And we've already learned about this type of thermodynamic work. Remember how we learned about the chemical potential in Lecture 9? Well, as a reminder, that chemical potential can be considered the thermodynamic force in a chemical reaction. And the change in number of moles is the thermodynamic displacement. We showed back then that a candle burning is undergoing a chemical reaction, one that turns paraffin wax plus oxygen in the air into CO2 plus water. And I mentioned that a reaction will always occur in the direction from high chemical potential to low chemical potential. Our thermodynamic analysis showed that this reaction is heavily directed towards the candle burning. Now, as we set the stage to go deeper into the thermodynamics of chemical reactions, remember also how I discussed the fact that thermo only tells us which way a chemical reaction wants to go. It does not tell us whether it can go. For that, we need to understand the kinetics of the problem. And remember that thermodynamics only tells us about the equilibrium properties of materials. We take an eventually-it-will-happen approach to the world. So, for the case of the candle burning, this point is illustrated by the fact that as badly as that reaction wants to happen, and our thermodynamic analysis tells us that it will, it doesn't happen, not until we light it with an external source of heat. 
This is the kinetic part of the problem. Sure, the reaction is very favorable, but there's a barrier for it to occur. Without some heat input into the system, it cannot get over that barrier, and so it remains stuck in what we call a metastable state. That means there's, more, there's a more stable state it wants to be in, in this case, CO2 plus H2O, but it's separated from that state by a barrier. Again, I'll repeat that because it's so important. Thermodynamics does not speak to such barriers. It only tells us how to find equilibrium states, not what the road look like, looks like along the way. That's also embedded in the very concept of state functions, which remember, have no dependence on the path taken. Okay, so enough setting the stage. Let's do a really fun chemical reaction. Have you ever mixed vinegar with baking soda? What you'll find is that you can get quite a bit of bubbles forming when these two chemicals are mixed. In fact, many kids throughout time have built play volcanoes where the eruption that occurs is made from this reaction. Sodium bicarbonate reacts with acetic acid to form sodium acetate plus carbonic acid, which then decomposes into water plus CO2. And it's all that CO2 that causes the bubbles. I like this particular reaction so much that I wanted to take it to another level here for you. Let's take a look. So here we're gonna see a really fun reaction. In this bowl, we're gonna watch a reaction of hydrogen peroxide, which has the formula H2O2, decompose into O2 gas plus water. Now, I'm gonna add a little bit of sodium iodide to help the reaction go more quickly. And it's a pretty fast reaction, so I'm gonna make sure I wear my safety goggles. So here's the sodium iodide, and I'm gonna add this to the uh, H2O2. You can see a whole lot of fizzling happened, which is all of that O2 molecules, all those oxygen bubbles getting released. And also, you might have noticed that this container got really hot. A lot of steam actually came out, and that's because the reaction is highly exothermic. It really wants to go forward as it releases a whole lot of heat as it goes downhill in the reaction. Now, the chemical energy is stored in the hydrogen peroxide, and it's really on display as you see it dissolve into O2 plus H2O. But now, let's do this again, only this time I've added a little bit of liquid detergent to the mix. So I've gotten here sodium iodide plus some liquid detergent. That way, when the O2 gas forms from the reaction, it's gonna be trapped inside of bubbles because it's soapy now, instead of just be released into the air, okay? So here I have the same hydrogen peroxide, H2O2 in this, in this flask, and I'm gonna add the sodium iodide into it. Now that was fun. And it's a great example of the strength of the driving force for this reaction to occur. Another way of thinking about it is that what we just witnessed is, is a very large chemical potential difference for a reaction, which is the fundamental thermodynamics going on inside of that flask. Now that was a lot of fun. In that reaction, we had hydrogen peroxide mixing with sodium iodide. And as you could see, it was a very favorable reaction. Notice another point here. Unlike the example of a candle burning, in this case, there was no barrier to the reaction occurring. 
The second I mixed the two chemicals together, the reaction went forward. I did not need any added heat, and in fact, a whole lot of heat came out during the reaction. I'll come back to this heat thing in a moment, but first, let's turn to one of our favorite things to do, and that is define important terms. So, for starters, let's put forth a basic definition for what I mean by a chemical reaction. Okay, chemical reactions happen when through some process, a set of one or more chemical species become a set of one or more different chemical species that was not in the original state. Chemical reactions come in a variety of forms, including, first, decomposition. In this case, a single chemical species becomes two or more species upon the reaction occurring. Second, synthesis. Here, two or more chemical species become a single species upon the reaction occurring. And third, displacement. In this case, the same number of chemical species is found before and after the reaction, but the atomic species in the chemicals switch. Okay, so let's see. For case one, decomposition, an example could be the reaction of water to form hydrogen and oxygen, or 2H2O goes to 2H2 plus O2. For case two, synthesis, an example could be the formation of carbon dioxide, so C plus O2 goes to CO2. And for case three, displacement, how about Cl2 plus 2NaBr goes to Br2 plus 2NaCl, which is a simple way to form pure bromine from its naturally occurring salt form. In writing these examples down, you may have noticed that the numbers all work out so that the reactions are balanced. I'll come back to that in just a little bit. Now, in addition to these basic categories, a really important one relates back to the heat I just mentioned. Formally, we say that chemical reactions can be either exothermic or endothermic. In general, an endothermic reaction is one in which energy input is required for the reaction to occur, while an exothermic reaction is one that releases heat energy upon reacting. Now, there's a very important point here related to that barrier concept. Endothermic and exothermic refer to the process of the reaction itself. They do not refer to any energy required to overcome a barrier to get it going. For example, I just mentioned a few moments ago that burning a candle requires heat to start the reaction, so you may be tempted to consider that an endothermic process, since energy input was needed. But that's not how we should think about the use of the word endothermic here, since that refers only to the reaction barrier, not to the thermodynamic process of the reaction itself. For that, as we know, by just putting our finger near the flame, the burning of a candle is clearly exothermic. A few examples of endothermic reactions would be melting an ice cube, or evaporating water, or baking bread, or cooking pretty much anything, melting a solid, a chemical ice pack, like in a first aid kit, and plants growing. Well, the photosynthesis part, anyway. A few exothermic reaction examples would be, well, in addition to the burning candle, it could be making an ice cube from water, rusting iron, a chemical hot pack, burning gas on your stove, and sure, let's just throw in for good measure, nuclear fission. Now, the first and really most important topic of interest in terms of thermodynamics is to find an answer to the simple question. 
which direction will a chemical reaction occur? This, of course, depends upon the current equilibrium conditions of the system. For standard chemical reactions in a lab, the control variables are typically temperature and pressure. And I hope as I say that, that you're getting an idea, or at least having a good dose of deja vu. You see, when we have those conditions of constant temperature and pressure, there's a particular thermodynamic variable, a potential energy variable, that's extremely useful. And it will be the one we use to analyze reactions. Yes, you knew it was coming. It's the Gibbs free energy. Now, as a reminder, the Gibbs free energy is equal to the internal energy minus temperature times entropy plus pressure times volume. So G equals U minus TS plus PV. Or if you're a fan of enthalpy, this can also be written as G equals H minus TS. And as we saw back in lectures 10 and 11, by considering the first law and our definition of entropy in a reversible process, the differential form of the Gibbs free energy can be written as follows. DG equals minus S times DP, DT plus V times DP plus a sum over all the components of the chemical potential of each component times the change in number of moles of that component. Remember, this type of equation is called a fundamental equation because such an equation completely specifies all changes that can occur in the given thermodynamic system. Fundamental equations form the basis for applying the second law of thermodynamics to identify the equilibrium state of a given system. And that's what we'll do now for the case of a system undergoing chemical work, or more sim simply put, for the case of reactions. So, if a chemical reaction occurs at constant temperature and pressure, the change in the Gibbs free energy in a chemical reaction will tell us whether a reaction will go in the forward or in the reverse direction. If the change in G for a given reaction, or delta G sub Rxn, as we like to write it, if this is less than zero, then the forward reaction is favored. If it's equal to zero, then the reaction is, is in equilibrium. And if it's greater than zero, then the reverse reaction is favored. I won't go through the detailed math for how those definitions come about, but it's quite straightforward by considering the second law of thermodynamics, which states that the entropy of the universe for any spontaneous process must increase. And the definition for the change in the Gibbs free energy that I just wrote down for you. So from this equation for the change in the Gibbs free energy, you can see that for a system at constant temperature and pressure, we can write dg as equal to a sum over all the components in the system of the chemical potential of that component times its change in number of moles. And as I mentioned, we already saw back in lecture nine that the chemical potential dictates mass flow. It's what we consider to understand how molecules in a reaction are driven from one phase into another in closed systems, or how the addition or subtraction of molecules occurs in open systems. Remember, I used the analogy of a seesaw, where we add up the chemical potentials of each side, and the heavier side, that is, the side with the largest chemical potential, wins. That means that that's the side that pushes the seesaw down, and the side that we can consider to be the reactants. Now, suppose that we want to find the equilibrium condition for a given reaction. Well, the way we find equilibrium for any process 
is to find the point at which the change in the Gibbs free energy is zero. So where does dG equal zero? For a given reaction, this will equal the sum over those chemical potentials times number of moles, where we use a positive sign for the species on the right and a negative sign for the ones on the left. This gives us the net change in G for that possible process. But there's another really important point here, namely that we cannot simply create something out of nothing. So we have to make sure that the reaction is balanced. Now, as an aside, in processes such as nuclear fusion, it does in fact seem that we're creating something completely new. But that's a bit more complicated case that we're not going to go into in this course. And even in nuclear reactions, if we count all of the atoms and electrons and energy involved in the process correctly, we'll find that nothing is created or destroyed. But in any case, for the cases that we're interested in thermodynamics, while chemical species may change from one form to another in a given reaction, the total number of atoms is conserved. So I have to balance the two sides of the reaction. As an example, I couldn't write down H2O goes to H2 plus O2, even though I know the two diatomic molecules are what form. Instead, to find the balance, I would write this as 2H2O goes to 2H2 plus O2. And there you see that the number of hydrogen and oxygen molecules, although they've taken on a new meaning by decomposing, is fully conserved. Those coefficients that wind up balancing the reaction, and we like to use integers here instead of fractions, those are called the stoichiometric coefficients of the reaction. And if you think about it for a bit, you can see that these numbers are in fact very important. That's because if I feed a reaction with a certain number of moles of reactant, then the stoichiometric coefficient tells me something about how many moles of product I'll get. Actually, it's even more than that. It tells me how many moles of what needs to be mixed with how many moles of something else in the first place. For what is arguably the single most important reaction developed in human history, we have N2 plus 3H2 goes to 2NH3. Notice that this is balanced. Also notice that we have produced ammonia from nitrogen and hydrogen. So why is this so important? Well, because it was the first time humans could make nitrogen in a way that plants like. And as you can guess, that ability led to a new way of growing food, leading to nothing less than the industrial revolution of food itself. Nitrogen is a crucial ingredient in plant growth. And you might think, well, but air is 78% nitrogen, so what's the big deal? Well, the thing is, nitrogen in the air is not suitable for plants because it's in the form of N2, which is two nitrogen atoms connected by a triple bond. This is one of the strongest bonds in nature, and plants simply cannot break it. So to them, this type of nitrogen is useless. Of course, carbon and oxygen are also crucial for plants, but unlike nitrogen, these are easily obtained by the plants from soil and air. So what the Haber, or sometimes as it's known, the Haber-Bosch process does, is it takes nitrogen from that unusable form and makes it usable in the form of ammonia. This process is called fixing the nitrogen, which just means converting it into some bio-friendly form. 
Fritz Haber developed the process in this reaction in the early 1900s, and it completely changed the world. If you want to get a sense of just how much, consider this. Today, 500 million tons of nitrogen for fertilizer is produced this way each year. And about half of the protein in all human beings on this planet comes from nitrogen that was fixed by this process. Take a look at this human population curve and notice where the Haber reaction was developed. It's no accident that after that process, the population was able to and did grow at a much faster pace. Okay, so that's the background. Now let's go back to the thermodynamics of the reaction itself. What if I were to start this reaction with a mole of N2 and a mole of H2? What would I get? Well, in that case, since the stoichiometric coefficients are 3H2 per N2, then you can see that for each N2, I need 3H2 to react. So I would consume the full mole of H2, but only one-third of a mole of N2 in the process. And in the end, I'd get out two-thirds of a mole of NH3. If I'd wanted to consume all of the N2 to begin with, I should have started with a number of moles of each reactant in line with the stoichiometric coefficients. So in this case, one mole of N2 and three moles of H2 would have been good, and I would have wound up with two moles of ammonia. Now, there are two important things we do to quantify this aspect of reactions. First, we want to know the change in free energy per mole of reaction. Second, we only really want to know this for the amount of the reaction that has occurred to completion, or as it's often called, for the extent of the reaction. This extent concept can be understood as considering the reaction occurring in terms of the change in number of moles of a given species divided by the stoichiometric coefficient for that species. The change in free energy for the reaction is then divided by this scaled change in number of moles, which leads to what we want, namely the change in the Gibbs free energy per mole of reaction that actually occurs. Don't worry if that's a little confusing at first. The main point is that this version of the change in free energy is the one we want for a reaction since it combines all that stuff I just mentioned about how much each species is able to react dictated by those stoichiometric coefficients. In the end, our expression for delta G sub Rxn per mole is equal to a sum over the number of components in the reaction of the chemical potential of the component times the stoichiometric coefficient of that component. And the same conditions as before apply. But now, since it's per mole, Remember that we need to write a bar on top of the variable as per our convention. So for the Haber reaction, we have that delta G with a bar on top for the reaction is equal to two times the chemical potential of NH3 minus three times the chemical potential of H2 minus one times the chemical potential of N2. And as before, if this quantity is less than zero, the reaction occurs spontaneously in the forward direction. Equal to zero means it's in equilibrium, and greater than zero means it occurs spontaneously in the reverse direction. Okay, now, for standard temperature and pressure conditions, and for the given phases of these materials, all gas phases in this case, we can look up the tabulated values for the chemical potentials. And what we find is that the change in free energy for this reaction at standard conditions, so that's temperature equals 298 Kelvin and pressure is one atmosphere, that's equal to minus 33 kilojoules. As a reminder, 
when we're talking about standard state conditions, we usually put a little not symbol above the variable to specify this. And by the way, the actual absolute value for the chemical potential is not important. And it would be a real pain to work with absolute values. I mean, after all, we don't measure mountain peaks by their distance to the center of the Earth, but rather only by something more meaningful to us, namely their distance from sea level. For chemical potentials, all that we care about is their difference from one side of the reaction to another. So it makes no difference how we define them as long as we're consistent. As a matter of practice, the convention is to take the chemical potential of each element as zero for reference. This implies that the state of matter in which substances are decomposed into the elements under standard conditions for the scale of the chemical potential represents our analogy to sea level for elevations. Here are just a few examples of standard state chemical potentials. Notice that the pure elements are zero and also that the chemical potential of a pure substance depends on its state and crystal structure. For example, liquid water and water vapor have different chemical potentials at the same temperature and pressure. Okay, so let's go back to our reaction. Now, we just derived the fact that this reaction has a tendency to go from the point of view of its free energy per mole of reaction. But that was only at standard conditions. How do we predict what happens when these conditions vary? Well, first, what about temperature? In so many cases of industrial importance, we know that the temperature of a given reaction is considerably higher than the standard 298 Kelvin, or in other words, room temperature. Car engines run at temperatures more like 500 Kelvin. A natural gas-fired power plant runs above 900 Kelvin. Steel is made over a range of temperatures from 1200 to 2000 Kelvin. And glass is made at a whopping 2700 Kelvin, just to name a few examples. So how do we take into account the role of temperature in a reaction? Well, in order to answer that question, we can go back to our original definition of the change in molar Gibbs free energy for a reaction. Namely, that it's equal to the change in molar enthalpy minus temperature times the change in molar entropy. And here we see the role of temperature. The simplest thing to do is just fix the delta H and delta S at their values for standard conditions, and then see that the effects of temperature from the T delta S term. Let's take a look at how this works for the Haber reaction. The change in enthalpy for this reaction at standard conditions, which we write as delta H with the little not symbol up there, is equal to negative 92.38 kilojoules. That means that if the reaction were to occur at zero temperature, then 92.38 kilojoules of energy would be released in the form of heat by the reaction as it occurs from left to right. Remember that at constant pressure, enthalpy change is in fact equal to heat. But what about entropy? Well, it turns out that for this reaction, the entropy change at standard conditions decreases as we form ammonia from N2 and H2. This actually makes sense. Remember, the entropy is equal to the number of degrees of freedom that the system has available to it. If we reduce the number of gas molecules that make up the system, we can see how the number of degrees of freedom would also reduce, and therefore the entropy. In this particular case, delta S naught equals minus 198.3 joules per Kelvin. So indeed, that's quite a negative value. Now, at room temperature, 
delta G naught equals negative 92.38 kilojoules minus 298 Kelvin times minus 198.3 joules per Kelvin, which equals about minus 33 kilojoules. Just what we had before from our analysis of the chemical potentials. This tells us the reaction is spontaneous at room temperature. But now let's increase the temperature. So for example, at 500 Celsius or 773 Kelvin, the value for delta G naught now becomes plus 61 kilojoules. So the reaction no longer occurs spontaneously. Now, this is perhaps counterintuitive, since we're kind of used to thinking of reactions happening more favorably the higher the temperature. But that is simply not the case for a, react for a reaction where entropy decreases. Okay, now a reaction can also deviate from the case of standard conditions in ways that don't just involve temperature. This gets a bit more complicated, and it's beyond the level of detail I'll be going into for this lecture. But I'll tell you the punchline in case you're interested. For reactions that occur under non-standard state conditions, we simply write the change in molar free energy of the reaction as equal to the change in molar free energy under standard conditions plus the ideal gas constant R times the temperature times the natural logarithm of what is called the reaction quotient. Again, I won't go into detail here, but that reaction quotient is related to the partial pressure if it's a gas or the concentrations if it's a liquid or solid. Now, let me conclude by going back to the concept of kinetics. As I mentioned, a thermodynamic analysis of reactions only tells us about the equilibrium case. That is, eventually, what the reaction will do given enough time. That means that if we apply our analysis to diamond, it tells us that it should, in fact, all react to graphite. But we know that this doesn't happen, at least not within any time frame we're living in. So the, the ideas of metastability or of barriers to reactions occurring and of the time scale over which a reaction occurs do not come from our thermodynamic analysis. In fact, for the Haber reaction, the key discovery was not that the reaction occurs, but rather how to make it occur much more efficiently by introducing catalysts that create intermediate processes and by varying the pressure to allow for large scales, high output, and low costs. Still, even without all of the kinetics, the simple question is, will a reaction occur or not, given that the system can find a way to its happy place? That question is crucial, since it forms the basis of even how to think about ultimately what can be made from what.